Jesse, how's it going? They're all plotting against me. Uh, who is it now? Everybody. Well, I shouldn't say everybody. I should say most of the city of El Segundo, California is plotting against me. I've never heard of this place. Is it full of Jew haters? What's going on? Podcast haters? El Segundo is a seemingly placid, comfortable city right on the coast, LA. Uh, and I, I walk around. I'll just go for a walk and people will lock eyes with me while they're walking their dog across the street. What the fuck? Look at me and they'll say, how's it going? What? No way. I don't believe you. Or they'll wish me a good day. You know what? They're probably only doing this because you're white. They're white supremacist. The, I, someone is plotting something. What? What sick fuck asks somebody they don't even know how their day is going? Does that make any sense to you? Have you ever heard of anything like this? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think you need to get out of California immediately. Well, good news. I'm flying out of California tomorrow. I'm back to New York? To Mexico. Oh, to Mexico. An even, an even more friendly place. <laughs> uh, so, so how did your meetup uh, with your LA listeners go? Um, well, it's happening tonight, but by the time oh. anyone's listening to this, I will be stabbed to death or arrested. I will have been. So, uh, no, I'm looking forward to it. I don't, it's gonna be a little bit different tonight because it's more of a just like free for all. Everyone's on their own tab. I just like reserved a bunch of seats at a bar in El Segundo. So we will see. I hope to see some folks there. This is the weirdest way to make friends. You start a podcast you somehow convince people to pay you, and then you coerce those people into going out drinking with you. That's how desperate you are to make friends. So it's truly impressive. The it just I should come clean here. I ran out of cash. Mm. I'm trapped here in El Segundo. My Airbnb is about to run out. So I'm hoping um, both to get some food and drinks out of people and to manipulate them into buying me a plane ticket home. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, I think that'll work. I, I'm sure people want you out of California immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, Katie, what is the name of this increasingly? Is peripatetic a word, like wandering around? Uh, sure, that sounds right. Hold on. Let me double check it. Peripatetic. Yeah, traveling from... Katie, what is the name of this increasingly peripatetic podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And uh, even though I'm in California and I thought the world of media... And online bullshit would slow down. That hasn't happened at all, has it? It has not. The New York Times continues to, I don't know, what's the word for this? Is it is it a flame? Is it a conflagration at the New York Times? What's going on? Peripatetic. Peripatetic. It is roaming around. Yes, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. We are also going to talk about 15-minute cities. Is it urban planning or is it a fascist conspiracy? Ooh, I have long been wondering about it. You will have your answer to that question very shortly. Uh, before we get to that, however, we're also going to do some corrections, and I'm going to uh, complain a little bit. You complain? I don't buy it, but I know. Let, let's hear what you got. I know, it's weird. Okay, so first for the corrections. Um, Jesse, so last week on our show about the New York Times and this open letter that some outsiders wrote to the New York Times about their coverage of trans issues... That coverage, by the way, once again, has been 99% party line pro-transition. They've had maybe four articles that do anything but repeat slogans. They wrote an open letter. Then there was the response to the open letter. I said in this podcast that staffers didn't sign the letter. I meant to cut that out of the podcast 
And in fact, we are like recording. Didn't we do a pickup? We did. We, that? <laughs> we did. And you just didn't do it. You no. dragged me. Here I am <laughs> trying to make friends in California. You dragged me back to my miserable <laughs> laptop. Make me say, yeah, uh, Jenna Wortham was a staffer who signed. Yes. I said that when we recorded, there was all sorts of technical dif- difficulties. I was recording this at my parents' house. I asked them to be quiet. Instead of being quiet, they decided that it was a great time for the family family band to start practicing. Um, <laughs> so it was just, there was lots of technical difficulties at that time. Katie, Katie, would you say these were technical difficulties <laughs> or Katie difficulties? It was Herzog difficulties. Uh, so okay. I had to, re- after you and I spoke, my recording was so awful that I listened to it on my headphones and re-recorded it. So if people, there was a couple complaints about how at the end of the 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 show last week it sounded like I was really close to the mic doing some like ASMR shit. That's why because I was I, I was listening to myself and re-recording because the sound was so terrible. And uh, when I was doing that, I forgot to I forgot to repeat the part where I said that yes, some New York Times staffers including Jenna Wortham from the podcast Still Processing and uh, Jasmine Hughes, who's a staff writer, also signed this open letter. And I also forgot to cut the part of the podcast where I said that staffers didn't sign it. So I'm fired for that. And you were fired for not noticing this when you listen to the show. Um, well, no, I'm also not fired for that because I, I believe I said I wouldn't have time to listen to the whole thing. So I just asked you if it was okay. Okay. Yeah. Lex is fired for not noticing it when when he listened to the show. So so Trace is the only one left. The furry is taking over the show. The important thing is someone is fired. Jasmine Hughes. Yeah, she's right there. There was a third who was like, didn't someone say there was a third, like an econ writer or something? Someone less well-known? I don't know. Kyle Buchanan, a reporter on the Culture Desk. That was last week's show, Katie. Let's move. The, po- the point is, and th- this will matter for the segment we've got coming up, there were some staffers on this letter. Okay, so, but before we get to that, uh, we have an update on a prior show. So former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Spent Fuel and Waste Disposition at the Office of Nuclear Energy slash Future Convict Sam Brinton <laughs> has been in the news Again, over the past few weeks, first because he made his first appearance in a Minneapolis court where he is facing felony theft charges for stealing luggage from uh, the airport there in Minneapolis. And also, he's been in the news because the New York Post finally caught up to this podcast and reported that his claims of experiencing horrific abuse from his father, as well as being forced into conversion therapy, are likely bullshit. And also, because of the following tweet, which went viral in part... I would even say in large part, thanks to yours truly. And uh, this isn't a humble brag. This is a a real brag. This is literally the best thing I've ever done, including starting this podcast and hiring you, Jesse. So what happened is that a listener yesterday, we're recording this on Thursday, a listener sent me a tweet that at the time had no engagement, had like four likes and zero retweets. And the tweet read as follows. My name is, I'm just going to butcher this one. Aziak Kamsen. Yes. Tanzanian fashion designer based in Houston, Texas, USA. Isn't it Tanzanian? What did I say? Tanzanian. <laughs> I'm going to start oh that over. Oh my God, you fucking hate Africa. Tanz- Dude, I'm not starting that over. We're not hiding your errors. Tanzanian fashion designer based in Houston, Texas, USA. Houston, Texas. <laughs> I lost my bag 2018 uh, in DCA. Recently, I heard news on Fox News about Sam Brenton luggage issue surprisingly i found his images wore my custom-made outfits which was in the lost bag uh, on 2018 so english is a little broken there but she posted photos of these this is a designer she posted photos of, of the clothing that she has created herself beside pictures of sam Britton 
wearing said clothing. The first photo, it was like the the pattern on the on the neck of this dress. It was slightly different because it looks like he's wearing her dress backwards, which I feel like is now that's an insult. Yeah. Um. And but he has been photographed at various times wearing at least three of this. Wait, isn't it isn't it that I know it's like a, isn't it they? Oh yeah, sorry. They have been photographed at various times wearing at least three of this woman's outfits as well as a necklace. And these are not things that you could like buy off of a shelf. At like the DC TJ Maxx, this is custom shit. And so the question to me is: Does he just have? Does they just have just incredible luck when it comes to stealing luggage? Like, what are the odds that you steal a random bag at the airport and you get the kind of shit that you actually want to wear, rather than like a bag full of cargo shorts and Eagles jerseys? Right. And and my guess is that Sam Britton stakes out baggage drops. And then shoot like like picks people out whose clothes that he actually like they they actually like and then targets that person to steal their baggage. So at first I like when this story first broke, I thought maybe it was it was a fetish, but now I just think he's cheap. <laughs> Can you imagine if I posted that? It's like uh, I heard of the new, I had a yeah a pair of baggy cargo shorts with a giant hole in them, and then I saw Sam <laughs> <laughs> a hole right where the ass is. Okay, so so this tweet, it goes very, very viral, thanks to yours truly. It would have gone viral if other people had seen it, but nobody did at the time. You did, I, I, I want to say, it would have been irresponsible for you to tweet it without knowing for sure, but you quote retweeted it, and you said, please be real. I did. So I covered my ass. You're off the hook. <laughs> um, although my better commentary was my secondary tweet, which was, I guess, her culture is his costume. Um, okay, so this has now been covered all over the media and I think this makes me an official influencer. So if like any protein powder companies or like laxative suppliers want to want to sponsor my tweets, I am open. My DMs are open. Your your DMs are very open. They're always open. Let's see how many uh, how many views this has. So her tweet now has fifteen point four million views. Wow. <laughs> she might never she might never get her clothes back, but she might get some contracts out of this. Yeah, you got to root for her. It's not every day that a weirdo steals your luggage to wear your clothes. So uh, good luck to her. I'm just going to say her because I don't want to butcher her name again. Okay, so also he did this. I'm sorry. They did this in 2018. So Sam Britton has apparently been at this for a long time. Yeah, he. Uh, they seem to have a problem and I hope they get the help they need. Yeah, they probably have good therapists in jail. Okay, Katie, you had another thing you also want to talk about? Yes, there was something else that came across the transom this week that interested in me. So so Ross Douthat, he wrote a column called American Teens Are Really Miserable. Why? And it was based on CD, some recent CDC data about, about rates of happiness among teen girls or rates of depression among teen girls. And he cites Jonathan Haidt. And basically, he says that if there is like one monocausal factor, the evidence points to cell phones, which like that makes intuitive sense. I mean, nothing is really monocausal, but that does make intuitive sense to me because like today, for instance, I use my cell phone to look up how much money Michael Hobbs makes on Patreon. And now I have clinical depression. You, you, I don't, do I want to know how much he makes? Uh, here's what we know. He has 44,000 patrons. That's a lot. That's arguably more than we have. That's arguably four times more than we have. And he's making millions of dollars every year from this podcast that he has. That's arguably more than we're making. Arguably. Although if you trust that one article, we're making like eight. Right, right. 
million. He's making millions. Millions. Michael Hobbs is making millions of dollars every year to, I think his- Katie, I'm in California. Out here in California, we're a little bit more chill about stuff. Maybe try it sometime. He's making millions. Okay. So several prompts. So the, my point is, I understand why, why cell phones make people miserable because I'm now the Joker. And so several prominent media figures saw Ross's column and they immediately countered that, no, it's not cell phones. It just so happens to be their own personal pet peeves. And my favorite examples of this were like on the left, Taylor Lorenz said, no, it's not cell phones. It's uh, she blamed t- teen angst on late capitalism. And then Jessica Valenti, she blamed teen angst on rape. That's her issue. And so not to be outdone, uh, conserv- a conservative women women's magazine named Evie, they blamed uh, birth control and seed oils. Mm-hmm. So there's a lesson here, Jesse, and the lesson is that every cultural phenomenon ultimately ties back to whatever the writer actually cares about at any given moment. So I think I can confidently state that the reason that teen girls are so unhappy is because Michael Hobbs makes millions of dollars a year on his terrible podcast. I think uh, it's just science. It's just it's science. just science. That's it. That's it. All right, Katie, you wanted to talk about 15 minute cities, whatever those are. Yes, Jesse. Are you familiar with the concept of the 15-minute city? I'm not. Really? I mean, it's just like, think about it. It's basically what it sounds like. It's a city where you can get everything that you want in 15 minutes. A city that takes 15 minutes to build. (laughs) build. Okay, wait. So it's a city everything's walkable walkable or drivable. Yeah, no, it's a Lego thing if you can build it in 15 minutes. It's a city that can only have sex for 15 minutes. So uh, it's what it sounds like. It's a city or a town where you can get everything you need within a 15-minute walk or bike ride. Would you say that your neighborhood qualifies? Your real neighborhood, not your uh, your second home in California? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I, I'm okay paying more rent is everything is insanely convenient. Yeah. So mine- You, you have to like take a fucking boat yeah. to buy a light bulb. It's true. And I have to paddle the boat myself. Uh, so my neighborhood absolutely does not qualify unless all you need to survive is like a hot dog trailer. We have one of those. We have a pot shot and we have a groomer called Doggy Style. A groomer? Should we report yeah. on the groomer? <laughs> <laughs> Moose was groomed? No, Moose has never been groomed. Moose gets uh, gets groomed only at home. Um, but regardless, this is an urban planning idea to reduce congestion and reliance on cars and to increase walkability and livability. The name was coined by a French-Colombian urbanist named Carlos Moreno in 2016, but this is not exactly a new concept, right? Like Jane Jacobs was talking about livable cities in the 1950s and 60s. But for some reason, the idea of the 15-minute city now strikes some people as frankly fascist. Uh, Okay, well, hold on. Let me make sure I'm with you so far. A 15-minute city, like a, a good urban planning, is fascism. Yes, Okay, continue. Okay, so what happened is that in 2021, the Oxfordshire City Council, so this is in England, announced that they would begin trialing a few of what are called low-traffic neighborhoods in East Oxford in 2022. And the goal is to encourage walking and biking. And what that basically meant is that they would be shutting down some of the roads for through traffic to make them safer for cyclists and pedestrians. And they would do this for a trial period and then take feedback from residents and other stakeholders. And this is key to understanding this this whole thing. The leader of Oxfordshire County Council emphasized that these low-traffic neighborhoods, LTNs, were a stepping stone towards behavioral change in terms of tackling the climate emergency and moving towards uh, zero-carbon transport. Got that? Yeah. So they do this trial in 2022, and there were some critics. Like, for instance, some people argued that closing some roads just increased traffic to other other roads. People just drove around. Others argued that it wasn't really accessible to people who can't walk or bike, etc. But apparently this wasn't a total failure because Oxfordshire announced that they would be implementing six more low-traffic neighborhoods. 
And these would feature traffic filters that require private cars to get permits to drive through. So people living in this area would get basically 100 permits a year for free to drive through this area. And then others within Oxfordshire would be eligible to get a permit to drive through the filters for up to 25 days a year. So these LTNs, these low traffic neighborhoods in 15 minute cities are not entirely analogous, but they are related And this has gotten a little bit confused, I think probably just because LTN, low traffic neighborhood, isn't quite as catchy as 15-minute cities. And part of the confusion appears to have originated last November when an outlet called Vision News published an article called Oxfordshire County Council Passes Climate Lockdown Trial to Begin in 2024. Have you, Jesse, are you a Vision News reader, subscriber? Yeah, I'm uh, highest level, premium. Yeah, I I figured it would be. So if you go to the Vision News About page, they say that they were that the site was, quote, created by a group of journalists, scientists, and businessmen in response to the increasingly biased and ideologically based journalism published by the BBC. So that sounds fine to me. I, the inclusion of like businessmen is a little bit sketchy in there, but anyway, whatever. And then if, but if you actually go to the homepage, here are the current headlines. Tony Blair launches new push for biometric digital ID for all citizens. Uh. Rationing to fix climate change recommended by British scientists. And mRNA was never intended to stay in the arm, according to CDC website. These are all like, uh, like, like gonzo right wing conspiracy theories. Well, they're okay. So. No, there does appear to be some truth in all of these posts, like Tony Blair did push for a biometric digital ID. But to me, like, I don't personally give a shit whether or not the mRNA vaccine step like stays in my arm or goes to Cabo for spring break. I don't care about stuff like that, right? And the digital ID... It's basically the idea is that this digital ID would incorporate your passport, your driver's license, whatever sort of, you know, identification information... And it would be stored, it could be stored on your cell phone and it would be verified by biometric data. That actually sounds kind of convenient to me. Well, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, no, all I was saying is that obviously these headlines, I'm sure they're, they refer to some sort of true thing, but it's a style of like yes. right wing fake news journalism that is just about, um, making people hysterical and these you know this idea of like a one world id system or uh, vaccine stuff a lot of it ties into that yeah this if you are inclined to be freaked out by this sort of thing this sounds like some big brother shit i will say like it's not these these things that i read these are not entirely fake news like there is there is some nugget of truth yes a british scientist did recommend rationing to fix climate change it's it's like a professor at leeds university like this who cares you know but the point of this website i think in the the ideological bent of the people running it is to see this as very duplicitous and, and terrifying okay so they published this article about ltns this article it was called oxford again it was called oxfordshire county council passes climate lockdown trial to begin in 24 2024 here's how it begins Oxfordshire County Council yesterday approved plans to lock residents into one of six zones to save the planet from global warming. (laughs) The latest stage in the 15-minute city agenda is to place electronic gates on key roads in and out of the city, confining residents to their own neighborhoods. This is so fun. When I went to the the West Bank, this is literally like what the Israelis do to to some Palestinians around Nablus. It's like a really – there are parts of the world where this is happening, and I can direct people there if they want to protest it. And the Israelis are doing that for climate change. (laughs) For climate change, yes. Under the new scheme, if residents want to leave their zones, they will need permission from the council who gets to decide – 
who is worthy of freedom and who isn't. <laughs> Under the new scheme, residents will be allowed to leave for a maximum of 100 days per year, but in order to even gain this, every resident will have to register their card details with the council, who will then track their movements via smart cameras around the city. What's your first uh, impression, Jesse? <laughs> I mean, t- I've, there's a lot of this with like the just anything involving climate change or like sustainability, there's always like a funhouse mirror version of it where they mm-hmm. just like some people online completely misunderstand. I'm guessing this is a complete misunderstanding of the actual proposal. Yes. There, again, there is some nugget of truth. Like they will be using cameras to track cars. If you drive around one of these six roads and you don't have a permit, they'll send you a ticket. But the UK is basically a police state when it comes to closed circuit cameras anyway. It's been like that for like I did study abroad in England in fucking 2001 and there was a camera on every block in the little city of Chester where I live. Like like it's been like that for decades. Oh wait, you established the Tavistock. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was me. I was actually the first patient. <laughs> but it is absolutely false that you won't be able to leave your zone or your neighborhood or that you'll need permission to travel. And they're also confusing this 15-minute cities thing, which is just the idea that you would have everything that you need within 15 minutes, including your workplace and your grocery store and your whatever else you use, your gaming store, if you're Jesse, mm-hmm. uh, with these LTNs, these low traffic neighborhoods. And the Oxford City Council does have a long-term development plan that does incorporate these 15-minute cities within it. But this Vision News article just kind of conflates the two. But regardless, this article spreads and more conspiracies get tacked on. And this results in a huge wave of harassment towards the members of the Oxfordshire County Council. And people start setting fires to the posts that, that block the road traffic in these trial zones. And this results in tens of thousands of pounds worth of damage. And the fear that people seem to have is that this is more evidence of the Great Reset. Jesse, you're Jewish. What's the Great Reset? That was I was what I was trying to remember. The Great Reset, it's basically just this one document by one of those like global NGO bodies that people have just freaked the fuck out about. And there's long been this strain in conservative thinking of like one world government oppressing us, environmentalists are gonna like it's just it's sort of all different versions of the same shit. And that there's some people have really freaked out about the Great Reset. I think James Lindsay yes. likes to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. So basically the World Economic Forum during COVID they have this this initiative called the Great Reset, which I, I got to say, who thought of that? <laughs> Bad idea, guys. Bad idea. It's not a secret, though. This was on their website. This site reads in part, drawing from the vision and vast experience of the leaders engaged across the forum's communities, the Great Reset Initiative has a set of dimensions to build a new social contract that honors the dignity of every human being. So the idea was like after COVID sort of reimagining some economic systems. But yes, this has turned into this idea of this like one world government and using COVID in specifically lockdowns as a way to oppress people. And James Lindsay is one of those people who, who pushes this. It, it would probably help people be less conspiratorial if they realize how dysfunctional like Europe is, for example, like Europe, which could not even agree on like basic questions about how to handle migrants. This idea that everyone's going to band together to oppress the common person is is unlikely to happen in the current system. Yeah. And and this is the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab. And really, they did not do themselves any favor by calling this a great, the Great Reset. So this is spun into this massive conspiracy theory. And this is especially true online, where people seem convinced that global elites are going to like take your hamburgers and make you eat bugs. Mm-hmm. And the, that, that fits in with this overall theme that elites want to remake the world around the rest of us, steamrolling our preferences and forcing us to live in unnatural ways. Although I think eating bugs sounds pretty 
pretty natural. And also, you know, forcing us into communism under the guise of saving the planet from uh, climate change, because definitely what the World Economic Forum wants is, is Marxism. Mm-hmm. So for people who believe this, these low traffic neighborhoods or 15 minute cities are just more proof that the government is coming for their for their preferences, when in this case means their preferences to be stuck in traffic for hours. <laughs> and so online, this manifested with people very sincerely arguing, for instance, that there's no benefit to having amenities close by. Like I, I saw a conversation on Twitter where somebody was very sincerely arguing that his kid's 45-minute commute to school is somehow a good thing. <laughs> and of course, all of the usual figures weigh in on this, like Jordan Peterson, he tweets, the idea that idiot tyrannical bureaucrats can decide by fiat where you're allowed to drive is perhaps the worst imaginable perversion of that, that idea. And make no mistake, it's part of a well-documented plan. What? Well, why are, like... Why are they? I'm sorry. Why are they such assholes? Like Jordan Peters, he's gone a little bit crazy. But does, he's crazy. Does someone like him or like, um, you know, Eric Weinstein, when they just tweet out these like little bits of chum, there are a lot of really crazy people online, and they look to you as a leader, and you're going to really rile people up. Like, just why don't you do a little research before you tweet about it, Jordan? I'm addressing Jordan Peterson directly now. <laughs> All right. Also. Use some common sense. Like, does Jordan Peterson think that yellow lines on the roads are suggestions or something? Like, <laughs> like yes, idiot tyrannical bureaucrats can decide by fiat where you're allowed to drive. And that's how it's always been. Like, that's how it's been since cars were invented. Like, it's not driving. It's not like the game trail. It's not like an organic process about where you're allowed to drive. And, and he says, yeah. make no mistake, it's part of a well-documented plan. Yes, it is. It's called urban planning. They take notes. It's not a conspiracy. It's a, it's an effort to make cities better for pedestrians. Well, well, the other thing is, like, I think London and New York have both, I don't know where they both are. Um, there's, like, talk of, like, a congestion tax, right? Like, if you drive in the center of London or, like, lower Manhattan, um, some part of Manhattan, should you have to pay a congestion tax? And there's, like, really strong classical economic arguments for why you should to, like, handle the externalities of traffic and pollution and blah, blah, blah. But there might be reasons not to have congestion taxes. But if the people arguing against congestion taxes are crazy loons talking about one world government, right. we can never really have that conversation. Exactly, exactly. And that's the problem with this. We'll get back to that in a little while. But so, okay, so Nigel Farage, he also gets involved in this. He tweets, the climate change lockdowns are coming because, of course, lockdowns were so effective during COVID, they're going to start implementing them to keep people at home so they stop driving. Uh, a conspiracy theorist named James Corbett, he, he says, we are talking about city councils starting to take control and starting to herd people into carefully controlled spaces. And this became a thing on TikTok as well. For instance, there's a clip going around featuring Katie Hopkins. Katie Hopkins, according to Helen Lewis, and this is direct from quote from Helen, and no, I did not get permission to share it. Quote, her best ever move was selling stage paparazzi pics of herself having sex in a field. Wait, st- popper? Okay. Sex photo, Katie Hopkins. <laughs> You're Googling. He's Googling right now, folks. Katie Hopkins addresses naked field sex pictures with Keith Lemon on celebrity justice. I don't know what most of these words yeah. mean. And I'm not finding the image I'm looking for. Let's move on. Um, okay, Jesse. So we're going to listen to this clip. This is Katie Hopkins on 15 Minute Cities. We'll only have 15 minutes of freedom here in the UK. So let me tell you the plan. The plan is in Oxford, and this has just been passed by the council, to divide the city here into a a squiggly city into six parts. So one, two, three, four, five, six. 
and you will only have the freedom to operate in the part that you live. So if this is you, the idea is that everybody will live within 15 minutes of the things they need, 15 minutes of a school, 15 minutes of a doctor's, 15 minutes of a supermarket. And if you want to travel to the other zones in your city or maybe soon your town, you will have to go out an approved route. You will have to journey around the outside of the city in order to re-enter another section of the city. This plan is supposed to be saving the planet. And the idea is that you won't simply be able to cross over into other sections of your city anymore. So if your mother, for example, lived over here, you wouldn't be able to just go across and see her. This would all be done via e-gates, electronic gates and number plate recognition. You in your area will only be allowed... Katie, I can't do this anymore. Make it stop. (laughs) Okay. Under under these new rules, if you want to be filmed having sex in a field more than 15 (laughs) minutes from your home... 15 minutes and then a giant hook comes out and scoops you up and deposits you back through the window of your flat. (laughs) I, I partly because I was distracted while I was listening to that, trying to look for photos of Katie Hopkins having sex in a field. I don't understand the connection between 15 minutes to make things convenient to anything outside of 15 minutes. You can't really go. I guess they're just like, it's a game of telephone involving where cars are allowed to go. And they're right. confusing. Some places will be closed to cars. Although surely residents can get, I don't know. It's all, it's a lot. Yeah. She fails to mention that you can, go on public transit. You can walk. You can ride a bike. Like the whole thing is basically you just have to like the roads, the main throughways of these areas will be closed. So basically you'll have to take another form of transit or drive around. The county council didn't FAQ about this. They don't have any control. They don't they're not trying to get any control of when you can leave your house. That's just it's ridiculous. But this really appears to be what some people think. They think that COVID lockdowns were just the first step in this draconian fascist plan, and we're about to be imprisoned in our homes to stop climate change. And people are serious about this. Like, there have now been protests against these 15-minute cities. There was one in Oxford where thousands of people marched in the streets, the streets that were presumably clear of cars, better for pedestrians. (laughs) One of the speakers at this rally was a 12-year-old girl who's like the right-wing equivalent of Greta Thunberg. Here's a clip from her speech. Oh, no. Of course there's a right-wing British Greta Thunberg. All right, let me listen. I can stand here and say more or less what other people are going to say about the effect of these 15-minute neighborhoods, soon to become digital ID facial recognition zones. Let's say my friend lives in zone three and I'm in zone one. If, for example, I went to my friend's house in zone three, my parents normally come and pick me up in in their car. It only takes ten minutes. So does that mean that they would have to go round the ring road and back into town again? If my mum or dad had to drive round the ring road, it would take 30 minutes, causing much more pollution and leaving a much bigger carbon footprint. They will say, you can walk home. Would that be safe for me to walk home? Me as a 12-year-old walking home in the dark alone. Is that really going to be safe? Then they will say, oh, don't worry about that. We've already thought of that. You'll be safe. We will have a thousand cameras on the streets following you and tracking you all the way home. Oh, and just remember, it's for your safety. What? Are you serious? Do you really... Yeah, a lot of uh, lot of anger getting little kids involved. Um, the cameras are following her home. Yeah. And, and did you notice the adult standing right beside her? Yeah. 
It is almost as though this child, like many people have accused Greta Thunberg of, is a pawn for adults who uh, have a particular agenda. I don't think adults would ever use kids as pawns in their own agenda. In my experiences covering the issues I cover, it's never happened. Absolutely not. And from the outside, this all seems very stupid, right? Like the people, it's like they're protesting like cute puppies or free pizza or something. Like traffic sucks. Who wouldn't want to be able to walk to work or a grocery store instead of getting in a car? I don't think it's I, I, like I was saying before. I think there's probably cars are convenient too. There's probably debates to be. It's like it's complicated, but it, making this out to be a global conspiracy and not pointing out any of the benefits of having more walkable cities is also very dumb. Right, and as someone who does not live in a bikeable or a walkable city, there is a lot that I think my my town could learn from this. Like in the town where I live, I have to get in a car to go to a coffee shop, and the coffee shop is is a Starbucks, Jesse. It's a Starbucks. Yeah, I live in real America here. Here, awful. And because a lot of these claims are really ridiculous, the liberal and mainstream media immediately appear to debunk these claims about lockdowns in the most condescending ways possible. And they're right. Like, there really are a bunch of totally outlandish claims here. Like, some of these people really do think that having to take a different road to Target is the first step to the gulag. And there really are a bunch of histrionic conspiracists taking this to this weird level. But I do think it's a mistake to dismiss all of the criticism as conspiracy theorizing. Like, a lot of people really are genuinely mad at the prospect of being fined for driving in the wrong place at the wrong time or for going over their allotted driving days in a year. And this is in the UK, but I think in America it would be much worse because America has much more of a car culture. And even if there are good policy justification for this, and even if I personally think that more walkable cities will ultimately improve people's lives... It's a stick approach rather than a carrot approach, right? And I tend to think that people respond better to incentives than punishments. And also because the people freaking out about this are mostly conservatives, they already distrust the government anyway. So any demand for change is met with suspicion because this is just more proof that elites hate them and want them to suffer. And, but then beyond all the social backlash, there's also the very real possibility of unintended consequences here. So for instance, if the goal is to reduce carbon emissions, but you make people take longer roads to get to where they're going, they might take a bus, they might walk, they might ride the bike. Or they might just get in their car and burn even more fossil fuels. That's what Greta, that's what Greta <laughs> Right, said. The right. New Greta, British, British right. Greta. And some business owners in the trial zone where this happens, they were complaining that while the goal was to increase foot traffic in these areas, what it actually did was decrease overall traffic because people weren't driving there. And so it was bad for business. So it is entirely possible that this is ultimately going to fail. But still, it's not communism, it's not fascism, it's not Marxism, it's not the global reset, it's urban planning. And clearly, cities do need buy-in from residents before imposing mandates like this, but that's what trials are for. And this becoming a cultural issue or some sort of international conspiracy is just going to make it a lot harder for leaders to figure out what actually works and what doesn't. Like, how do you continue this plan if people are... Th like issuing death threats to the county counselors, you know, if people are, are holding protests against this, it's going to be a lot fucking harder to get any sort of buy-in because people now think that this is fascism. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not, it's not, it's not a good way to go about any of this, obviously, but these are like hardened conspiracy theorists. It's, this is the right wing equivalent of everything is fascism. Yeah. Well, at least there's still two reasonable people left, me and Moose. I don't think you count on that list, uh -huh. Jesse. 
Anything else on this, Katie? This is it's just frustrating because like this is the kind of like right wing conspiracy theorizing stuff I, I wrote more about in like 2016, 2017. It never goes away. Like my interests have shifted because I sort of think I can have a bigger influence on quote unquote my side, but like you can't. This stuff is always just percolating. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Okay. Well, thank you for that story, Katie. Let's move on to housekeeping. We are Blocked and Reported. We're a podcast. You can find us at blockedandreported.org. You can become a primo. Katie, just off the top of your heads, without reading any notes or phoning a friend, what are some of the benefits of becoming a premium subscriber? You get three extra episodes of this podcast every month. Three extra episodes a month. We have recently done a podcast on... Uh, some bullshit you were involved with yeah we did one about me um i i misinterpreted a guy's work yes so badly that he called me out on it and the whole podcast and you can listen to it there's a preview the last primo we did the whole podcast is me apologizing for being such a bad journalist that's the whole thing it was very humiliating you got fired from this podcast multiple times for this huge huge mistake you made no one had ever been owned and dunked on on the same time i was don't and it was really painful so if you want to hear me be utterly humiliated listen yeah to we're up to like ten thousand five hundred people so many people you join a community you get access to the you can comment on episodes you get early access to free episodes we keep forgetting to tout that you get three extra episodes a month uh there's occasionally some gatherings of primos uh including the one that will have occurred by the time you hear this what else katie what else should we say during housekeeping did you already say the comment section mm-hmm i literally five seconds <laughs> How high are you? Be honest. Uh, look, okay. Let me address this rumor. Every sure. once in a while, somebody in our in our subreddit will say something about how I'm always high during this podcast. I am never high when we record this podcast because they can literally hear you go. I'm look. It happened never? like once or never. twice in the very beginning of the show. I am literally never high when we record this show. Never, never. I think you're li- no. I think you're. Dude, lying. I haven't. Even, I think you're I haven't, lying. Would you say once or twice in the beginning? I. I haven't even smoked pot in months. All right. Let me read t- a text message you sent me an hour. Okay, that part was a lie. Let me read a text message you sent me an hour ago. <laughs> Katie. He's lying. I don't text him. Do you mind if I get blazed before this episode? Me, Jesse. Katie, not again. This affects the quality of the work. I care about our listeners. Katie, fuck our listeners. Fuck those idiots. I'm Look, getting high. I'll kill I you. I do not get high before the show. I don't even get high after the show. I've been <laughs> doing some dirty. clean living stuff. It's all wrong. Stop saying that I'm constantly high. I'm never, ever <laughs> high. In fact, I've never even been high. <laughs> I've never, I can't remember if I've been high before. Um, <laughs> uh, somehow we've managed to screw up housekeeping. I think that was it. Oh, Barpod Mer- barpodmerch.com is a place for all your merch needs. Actually, tonight... I said in the invite that the first five people who come up to me wearing or toting bar pot officially licensed merch, unofficially, uh, I will buy them around. So we'll see if there are five people anywhere who own bar pod merch. I'm wearing my Park Slope Panther shirt right now. Are you really? I can't see you, so I can't tell for sure. No, I'm wearing a tie-dye shirt that my wife got in fifth grade, but... <laughs> yeah, you just lie. But you did You did just smoke out of the bar pod bong. There is no bar pod bong. There's no weed. I never smoke weed. I'm more of a fentanyl user these days. All right. Should we move on? Let's do it. Let's go back to the New York Times. Uh, So we sort of caught everyone up on what's been going on at the beginning of the episode because we've talked about it a little. But in brief, small number of staffers and a larger number of contributors signed this virtually contentless open letter denouncing the Times for its allegedly transphobic coverage. Leadership at the Times, most importantly, executive editor Joe Kahn, They responded aggressively. They reminded everyone that it was against the rules to act in such an uncivil manner toward their colleagues, you know, because the note denounced people by name, uh, and also that it's against the rules to join in activist efforts. 
this is a pretty common policy at like old school legacy publications. Uh, the News Guild of New York, the union which represents editorial staffers at the Times, responded by sending its members an email accusing the Times of attempting to illegally clamp down on protected attempts to address workplace conditions. Katie, I believe that's where we left off, right? Yes. So a lot of people found it very crazy that the Guild was trying to portray this as a workplace conditions issue. In fact, the fact that the Guild did that seemed to pull some time staffers who had been off the sidelines into the fray. So on February 21st, Vanity Fair reported, a group of high-profile New York Times journalists on Tuesday privately fired back against News Guild of New York President Susan DeCarava over a letter that she'd written affirming journalists' right to criticize the paper in order to address workplace conditions, a response that came amid a dispute over the Times' coverage of transgender issues. Quote, factual, accurate journalism that is written, edited, and published in accordance with Times standards does not create a hostile workplace, end quote, reads the letter, which was organized by reporter Jeremy Peters and, in the past 24 hours, collected dozens of signatures. Among them are Peter Baker, Charlie Savage, Adam Goldman, Michael Grinbaum, Apurva Mandavili, Lisa Lehrer, Jim Rudenberg, Mike McIntyre, and Katie Zernike. Quote, one more quote. Your letter appears to suggest a fundamental misunderstanding of our responsibilities as journalists. Regretfully, our own union leadership now seems determined to undermine the ethical and professional protections that we depend on to guard the independence and integrity of our journalism. Um, so it's Pretty heated stuff. A lot of people were surprised that Apurva Mandavili was on there. I feel like she sort of has a reputation for being more on the activist side. Did, did that? Do you remember her? No. Who is she? I, I could have this wrong. I think she basically filled in the niche Donald McNeil Jr. left when he was driven out because of his genocidal rhetoric. Okay, so yeah, these journalists are basically just saying like, no, we, we need to be able to report on tough issues. We don't need you to get involved in these editorial disputes. And... What I found so striking about all this and what we mentioned last week is just this is really unsustainable. A lot of times editorial staffers probably have a lot of strong private opinions on a lot of subjects. If you open the floodgates to anyone denouncing their colleagues for their coverage, like Israel-Palestine, abortion, police violence, crime, the place is just going to melt down. Like the building, we'll be able to watch the building melting into the earth on 41st Street uh, and it'll never be seen again. So this letter to the guild is basically telling them to back off on editorial issues leaked Tuesday, the 21st. And, and this was like really a um, escalation of intra times hostilities, right? Yeah. The last line jumped out at me. We are journalists, not activists. I think that is a very strong statement. There is a demarcation between journalists and activists, or there should be. There's not anymore. There, there used to be, I suppose. No, a lot of people don't right, think there should right. be. And this was part of the response to this online was a lot of people like, okay, what's the line? The line should be clear. Where's the line? Yeah, yeah. And, and we'll actually get back to at least one stupid, to me, example of that. But um, that letter to the Guild basically telling them to back off on these editorial issues leaked on Tuesday the 21st. Also that day, there was a Zoom meeting where the Guild invited members to provide feedback on all the recent chaos. This did not go well for the Guild, at least according to one person I spoke with who was in attendance. As I tweeted, uh, this person said, quote, the newsroom just revolted, end quote, against the Guild. They also said, quote, it was fucking crazy, end quote. Basically, like the overwhelming view of the 150 folk, uh, 150 or so folks on the call was that the guild had really screwed up and overreached big time. A lot of anger toward the guild, and at the end, someone even openly asked about how to recall the guild's leadership. Oh well, wow. um, Katie, can we? Yeah, Katie, can we pause for a second here to ask about my own journalistic practices in light of my many shortcomings? Sure. I talked to a person who was at this meeting who I very much trust. 
I just, they're not someone I would ever expect to distort something like this. On the basis of that one source, I did a tweet storm. Uh, in retrospect, if you report on something like that quickly based on one source, it's not good practice. Definitely not if you're writing for plays like the Times. Do you think I screwed up? Should I always wait or should someone always wait? Even for the sort of like, this is somewhere between reporting and, I mean, I guess it's technically reporting, right? I'm, I'm publishing information other people don't have under my own name. Should I have just waited to get that from a second source? Sure. Best, like best case scenario, sure. But I mean, I like I trust you and I trust that if you think that this person is reliable, that this was an accurate account of what happened. I'm sure other people said, you know, called bullshit because this was a single source, et cetera. But yeah. what, did something happen over this? No, I mean, just that was a point. People were like, "Oh yeah, I, all my friends agree with me on everything," which is dumb because the whole point has been that at past times meetings, our position has seemed to be in the minority, which is another point we'll get to. But yeah, reflecting on it, I was like, I don't know. I I had sort of a busy night, and I wanted people to know about this because I thought it was important. And I think if I could do it again, I just would have taken the time to like be able to say I confirmed it with a second source because the fact that I trust the source or that you trust me to pick my source doesn't really matter to readers. The whole right. point is to to cover your ass and to show your work to them, which I probably didn't do sufficiently. That being said, I've seen nothing to suggest my source was wrong, and I don't think they're wrong. Right. And also, I think that you're holding yourself to a higher standard than pretty much any journalist on Twitter would at this point. Um, <laughs> arguably. I mean, I think journalists at places like the Times, there's probably still pretty strong norms in place about sourcing, but people do seem to just sort of spout off on Twitter. Um, well, and also the incentive is to get something up as quickly as possible, which is a, to be clear, that's a bad incentive. Bad yeah. Uh, okay. Can we also do one other digression to talk about, cause a lot of this goes back to what happened in 2020 when the Times had like repeated meltdowns over various things, most famously, the Tom Cotton op-ed calling for the military to crack down on the subset of protesters who have become violent. Um, so on Tuesday, the same day Vanity Fair broke the news of that letter, Mediaite reports that it has obtained a copy of an upcoming book by Steve Krakauer, a journalist and Megan Kelly executive producer. It's called Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. Mediaite reported on some exceptionally juicy excerpts involving Charlie Warzel. You know that name, right, Katie? I do. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic now. He worked for the Times opinion page back then. I've liked some of the stuff he's written. I definitely view him as being in the more activist camp and probably disagreeing with me on a lot of this stuff. Uh, he's also partners with Anne Helen Peterson, who has similar views on this, but who has a lot of fans. Uh, Anne, I mostly dislike because she has a much more successful individual subsect than I do, mm -hmm. which just proves how deeply unfair life is, and I view it as a personal slight. This is why teen girls aren't happy. Because <laughs> of, of the size of Anne Helen Peterson's subsect. So for his book, Krakauer spoke with Sean McCreesh, who was at the Times back then, direct witness to the craziness. He's now a features writer for New York. Let me just read from Mediaite. According to McCreesh, now a features writer at New York Magazine, Cotton's call for federal intervention to quell violent riots in cities across the country was, was not just enough to force out Bennett, that's James Bennett, former head of the editorial page, but to bring out a, quote, bloodthirsty side of his former colleagues at the Times. The riots, which accompanied peaceful protests of the police murder of George Floyd, an African-American Minnesota man, were enough to spark company and opinion staff meetings about Cotton's submission. 
at the latter, McCreesh said that Charlie Warzel, a white tech writer, started to cry Uh-oh. because, quote, none of his friends wanted to talk to him anymore because he worked for this horrible, evil newspaper that would print this op-ed, end quote. Charlie, white man tears. You can't do that. You can't do that, buddy. Karen, we have a can- <laughs> We have a male, a Corin, a male Karen. <laughs> a Charlie. A male Karen is a Charlie. I have so many questions about this, Katie. I feel like there's only two options here. One, the less charitable one is that it's a very crazy thing to claim. So that the one, the less charitable option is that Warzel is lying and this didn't happen. Um, I don't think he's lying, but the alternative is that he has friends who are so pathetic and so shitty that they would stop talking to him, not because of anything he did, but because his bosses made an editorial decision they didn't like. I, I was going to say to you, I can't imagine having friends that shitty, but since you've been disowned by so many of your friends, you probably can. Yeah, this doesn't surprise. I I fully believe that Charlie is doing this. And in fact, like after the New York Times last week published a column by Pamela Paul, we talked about this on the last show about the new JK Rowling uh, podcast, someone in this, in this New York Times Slack group called Times Out, so for New York Times, queer people at New York Times said... It's profoundly exhausting to hear my phone continually vibrate on days we publish a news or opinion piece about transness. The messages I read either express concern or question how I can ethically continue to work here without betraying myself and my community. People do this. I had people at The Stranger do this to my colleagues. Ask how they could continue to work there. Yes. Try to pressure them. Try to pressure them to quitting. What a fucking yeah. loser. Yeah. I think it's it's shocking that Sean McCreesh was <laughs> that open about Charlie crying. Yeah. I'm so I'm glad that story came out. So anyway, what setting aside Charlie Warzel's white man tears, um, he's a total Charlie. <laughs> What's interesting is how the script seems to have flipped from twenty twenty from twenty twenty. Because in twenty twenty three, we know of at least one like pretty contentious meeting where the sort of more journalisty people on the journalism activism side won the day. It was the opposite back in twenty twenty, right? Right. Yeah, for sure. So I um. For my newsletter, I asked another Times veteran, not not the person who told me about this meeting, what they thought about what was going on here and why things had changed so profoundly. Quote, I hesitate to say it's an entirely new day because as we speak, the Slack channel for the Guild is filled with recriminations, they said. But as I see it, 2020 was a high watermark. We had a deadly plague and no vaccine. We had a case of horrific police violence, end quote. Uh, This person said that at the time, there wasn't much pushback to the crazy stuff going on at the times. Quote, I truly think a lot of people were taken aback by all that was going on and had not processed it. Now we've seen the wages of not speaking up. I feel like that sums it up. If you don't speak up against these sorts of influences in your newsroom, you'll you're giving power to some people who have like values that are severely misaligned with those of traditional journalism. Yeah. I mean, you did not see an open letter to the New York Times defending James Bennett signed by a bunch of staffers in 2020 after he was pushed out for running this Tom Cotton op-ed. It would have been much more dangerous. I think there was quiet. I think there was quiet pushback, but I don't believe there's anything like an open letter now. You know, and I've noticed this in a, in a different avenue. I'm working on a story right now about some... Uh, to be a little bit vague here, some uh, some illiberalism within a within a, a very liberal church, and one thing that's different about reporting this now in 2023 as opposed to 2020 or 2021 or even 2022 is that when I've reported on stories like in this this in the past, it's been really really hard for people to go on record, for people to to be willing to use their names, and I'm not having that at the, I'm not having that experience right now. People are really willing to speak up um, in a way that they that I don't think that they would have been in a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Things have uh I don't know. It's a it's a noteworthy change. Um 
my sources vibe shift. Another interesting thing this source told me was a theory about where the guild was going with that like claim of legally protected behavior. So the source pointed me to the last sentence of the New York Times open letter. That one reads, quote, there is no rapt reporting on the thousands of parents who simply love and support their children or on the hardworking professionals at the New York Times enduring a workplace made hostile by bias, a period of forbearance that ends today. Setting aside the fact that there is no rap reporting on the thousands of parents who love and support their is just stupid because this has been one sided for a long time and some and parents love their trans child is not really a story. Setting that aside, <laughs> my my source's claim was that the Pulitzer winning parent yeah, loves exactly. trans child. It's a real dog bites man story. My a real parent loves child story. Mm-hmm. My source's claim was that the or theory was that the guild was basically focusing on this last sentence, which does claim there's a hostile workplace at the Times, albeit with no evidence. So the idea is that management then gets pissed not because of this sentence, but because of the denigration of colleagues and the teaming up with an activist group with Glad. And the guild responds by saying, oh, so now we're not allowed to complain about workplace conditions. Right. Um, It seems like a bit of a bait and switch, no? Oh, I think that's exactly right. I said this on the last show. They're trying to make this into a workplace harassment issue or a hostile workplace issue when it seems to me that the only people who have a legitimate claim towards a hostile workplace are the people who were the subject of the open letter in the first place. Yeah. So so I finished that post uh, last night, Thursday. I scheduled it to go up Friday. And you got hold of the latest letter from the Guild, which more or less proves my sources theory was right, right? Can, can you read from a bit of that? Okay, so this is from the Guild, and it reads, Joe Kahn's and Katie Kingsbury's February 16th email to staff following their receipt of what is now known as the NYT Contributors Letter was precisely that, a broadly framed threat of reprisal that effectively discourages employees from engaging in a protected activity by, among other things, petitioning management concerning workplace conditions that, in the words of those who signed the letter, reflect a, quote, workplace made hostile by bias. Yeah. So again, they're, they're focusing on that last sentence, which it seems just like a throwaway line when that, that I don't really get the sense that's what times management is pissed about. Obviously they would prefer, I'm putting words in their mouths. The response from management though, from Joe Khan seemed to be about teaming up with an activist organization, which they clearly did because they coordinated the releases release of this letter with glad and denigrating their colleagues by name i do not get the sense that management was mad at them because they called their workplace transphobic with no evidence in public although i'm sure that's like frowned upon but it's just i don't i don't know if it was just like sloppiness on the guild's part and maybe they could have phrased the original letter better but a lot of people including us and a bunch of time staffers interpreted the first letter as saying that it was against the law to punish employees for publicly denouncing their colleagues and coordinating with activist groups I guess it's good that the Guild, I think, seems to be sort of backing off that position. I guess so. I mean, I think the Guild is on the wrong side here. If the Guild, if the guild wants to protect employees, why isn't the Guild protecting the people who are the subject of the open letter? Yeah, uh, I think that's right. And anyway, a huge amount has happened in the last week. A lot of it does feel like revenge of the normies at the Times. Um, I get the sense there was some pent-up frustration in the Times building from folks who really just do want to do journalism and who view it as valuable, even when it conflicts with activists. Uh Maybe even it's more valuable then. So I just remain really unimpressed with the quality of arguments from the folks on the activist side, from the folks trying to inject more activism into journalism. I I wrote about this a little bit. I find that the folks leading and cheerleading these efforts don't really believe in like the normal liberal tradition of argument and counter argument and so on. Like you sort of get the vibe from them that their position is so self-evidently correct and morally righteous that they almost shouldn't be bothered having to defend it. Do you get that vibe from them? 
Yeah, moral clarity. <laughs> I'm not sure Wesley Lowry would would approve of that usage of it. He's he's not always been happy with that. But I I, I that's part of it. This sense that we have the moral clarity. I'm not saying he uses the word the phrase in exactly that way, but that is that is the vibe that we know what's right. How could you argue with us? I think that that lack of interest in any real evidence or debate was clear from the open letter itself, which, as we explained last week, offered almost no evidence to support the claim that anyone at the Times had done anything wrong. And and it's also been clear in some of the follow-up discourse on Twitter. Let me just give two examples. Um, one is Jack Merkinson, acting senior editor at The Nation. So that's like a pretty important job in lefty journalism. He screencapped some of the coverage of the Times staffer's angry email to their union, and he said... Okay, so for these NYT journalists, it's activism to demand that trans people be treated like human beings in news coverage. What the fuck? But journalism to raise questions about the humanity of trans people. Anyone else see an issue there? Has he even has he even read the pieces that were the subject of this open letter in the first place? I think for someone like Jack Merkinson, this isn't this is really just about building his brand. He tweeted about it a lot. He linked yeah. to something he wrote that also had, as far as I could tell, had no evidence about this particular issue. It was very long, the thing he wrote. I didn't read it. It did seem to mostly be about the past, which is similar to the open letter, where you you don't have any evidence of wrongdoing. So you're like, yeah, transphobia and homophobia have been around for a long time. It's it's super bad. Um I did challenge him on Twitter. I was just like, can you provide one screenshot of anyone at the Times questioning trans people's humanity? It will not shock you that he does not uh, uh, appear to have responded. There's also this from Wesley Lowry, who is, whatever my disagreements with him, he's usually smarter than that. He also screenshotted some of the letter. Someone please provide me with the definitions of activist and journalist in this context. Should be easy enough since the line is allegedly so clear. By writing a letter to the head of the guild, are these NYT reporters behaving as activists or journalists? I, does he think this is like a gotcha? I guess so. I mean, it's the difference is very clear. In one case, Times journalists publicly signed a letter denigrating their colleagues and they coordinated with an activist group. In the other, they signed their names to a private letter pressuring, advocating for their own union to represent them in a certain way. No one anywhere. Well, and the initial letter, the goal of the letter was to influence the coverage of the issue at the paper. Yes. Yes. There is no... Co- I don't understand... Some of these tweets, I almost feel like they think we're dumb. Like when the nation editors, like, yeah, the Times has been dehumanizing, tr- not treating trans people as human. You're seeking retweets from people who don't follow this stuff closely, who are dumb. You're, Similarly, yeah, you're you're seeking retweets from people who think that J.K. Rowling has advocated for literal genocide. Yeah. Similarly, I'm sorry, like, no, no disrespect to Wesley, but it feels like he thinks people are dumb that if they can't recognize the difference, it's not whether or not it's technically activism to write a letter to your own union, which you have every right to do, it's obviously not the sort of activism activism that will affect your ability as a journalist because it has nothing to do with what you're covering. So mm-hmm. these are just sort of like F-tier arguments that really make no sense. And I think part of the reason the activists lost here, other than the tide turning, is because the letter was bullshit. The letter made no sense and mustered no real arguments. But whatever the reasons, this was so far, this has been a pretty good outcome, I think. Yeah, there's been some discourse lately about whether cancel culture is ending, whether wokeism has peaked and is on the downside. And I, I kind of think that it has. I mean, it depends on what on what industry you're in, uh, what circle you're in, of course. But I think overall in media, we're seeing and in corporations, we're seeing bosses stand up and saying, no, we won't be taken hostage by these people anymore. Yeah. 
uh, which is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Anything else, Katie? Uh, I hope next week we don't have to talk about the open letter to the open letter to the open letter. Um, this is the podcast now. This, is the <laughs> this has been Blocked Reported. As always, we're produced with help from Tracing Woodgrains and the mysterious Lex. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, if you're going to get caught having sex in a field, make it be with someone you really care about. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, 15-minute cities are only fascist if you can walk to your nearest fascism store within 15 minutes.